Hello and welcome to The Modern Urologist. I'm Dr. Todd Cohen with Myriad Genetics, and I'd like to welcome back Dr. Paul Sieber with Lancaster Urology in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. This is the second half of our installment discussing advanced prostate cancer and prostate cancer treatment in general. During our recording, however, we did experience some Wi-Fi connection issues, which compromised our audio. So I encourage you just to sit back, turn your volume up, and listen to those insightful comments that Dr. Sieber has to make. What's been big in the, uh, I guess, in the news and in the urology world recently is uh, hereditary testing, you know, finding genetic abnormalities, whether it's germline or somatic. And where does that come in in your in your world and at what point do you start testing people and uh you know what are you doing with that information well first um i'm terribly biased because my son has a phd in genomics so no one else is like me right no one else has got a kid who does genomics for a living right so genomics and bioinformatics he's like one of the first to have both the bioinformatics and the genomics stuff and so i, I you know i cheat a lot i got fired up about this years ago because my son got me fired up so I started out relatively naively just doing germline testing. So that was like about four years ago. And, you know, I was using your Myriad um, testing at that point in time. And I was still naive to it. And I, I must say, four or 5% of the time they're positive. Well, at 5% positive, that means you got to do 100 dudes to have five guys. Right. You know, so we talk about that number, but, you know, that's, that's, a, lot of, that's a lot of testing. That's talking to a lot of people to find five. So it was a little frustrating, but you know we kept cutting along and we'd find a few people. And um, I, being actively involved in clinical trials, we had a, you know we had a lot of we had trials for those people as well. So we moved on and put people in, and we've had trials. We still have trials ongoing for people who have DNA deficiency repair genes that are positive. And as it moved on, then we started getting involved in other stuff. So we started doing other diagnostic testing. So we started doing circulating tumor DNA testing, and then we started doing somatic testing, and I started finding it a little more often. So today, it's kind of a different story than when I was where I was at four years ago. As we talked earlier, we don't get to talk much, but I talked to a, one of my buddies recently about this, and we were saying, you know, we're seeing a lot of people walk in the door with widespread mets. So I've kind of started off these days, when a guy walks in the door with widespread mets, and you know there's something not right, I do a somatic testing on his original biopsy. And actually, AstraZeneca's product, you know, most of their patients in that trial had testing on their original radical prostatectomy, original biopsy. It wasn't from a metastasis. So I was always right. kind of felt like somatic testing has, had to always be on the, on the metastasis only. And it was so hard to do somatic testing because bone biopsies are impossible. And um, also I realized I don't have to do it that way. So we've kind of changed our, our treatment path. And if you walk in the door with metastatic disease, I do a somatic testing at the start. And if the somatic testing is positive, then I work backwards and I say, okay, now you need a germline test. Did you inherit this problem or is the, is the problem developmental? Which, which is it? And, and, and then we goes back and forth, you know, the people from AstraZeneca in particular tell me, you know, 25% of all my patients with casting resistant disease are going to have a genomic abnormality. I'm not seeing that. Yeah. Yeah. Not it's not that, that. It's definitely not that high. It's just, but... not, it's just not that prevalent. I'm not sure if they just took people at the end of life and they did a biopsy metastasis and why the numbers are so high. I don't know if their patient population is skewed. I mean, I've tested a lot of people and there's no, I mean, talking to my research coordinator who helps me work on this and I say, they're saying 25%. She's like, no way. Yeah. Now we see a lot of people that have variants of uncertain significance. So if you throw them in the mix, 
and say, do I have a lot of people with variants? Yeah. And I've stumbled on some other things, like I found a few Lynch syndromes, but that's not part of what I'm really looking for. Right. So I've stumbled across that on a couple of occasions. But if you said, are 25% of my people, or I guess you'd say, do half my people have roughly they're saying, or or BRCA1, BRCA2, do I have 12.5% of all my metastatic disease, BRCA1 or BRCA2? No way. No way. So I I don't know why that is. I think it's not. So I think the average guy's going to be a little um, befuddled because he's going to be saying, I'm supposed to be seeing this all the time. No, you'll see it some of the time. And I think that the somatic testing is ever been as prevalent as the germline. The AstraZeneca trial, if I remember correctly, they had more people who were somatically positive, or maybe it's the Clovis, one of the two. They had more people that were somatically positive than more germline positive. The problem was, like you were saying, even with using primary tumor biopsy, um, either from the radical or the original biopsy, they had failure rates that were pretty high, um, 30, 30 plus percent. They weren't able to get any kind of an answer at all. And then they went back and, you know, did some germline testing after that. But you know, what about like your high risk, you guys that come in, they may not be metastatic from the beginning, but they're high risk or, or even intermediate risk, family history is there. Um, are you inclined to, to do that? Or you just kind of wait on those guys to, to check for hereditary? Now, I'm, I'm, that's, another, that's another change in pattern that I'm starting to take. If you walk in the door, you don't have metastasis, let's say you've got high risk cancer, um, but you don't, you don't have any obvious meds. I'm starting to test those guys doing germline testing on them day one. And I'm reserving the somatic testing for, hi, I've got metastatic disease on day one. And the question becomes, and again, I was talking to a, another researcher, one of our, in the old days when we had meetings before COVID, and he was talking about they had done a whole mount sample of a guy who had a radical prostatectomy. And he had 19 different foci within his prostate that they could identify. And they did a somatic test on all the 19 foci, and one was BRCA positive. So it makes me worry, like like you said, if you do a somatic test, is the germline or is the somatic abnormality, is it uniform or is it like most people have said, you know, it's not uniform. It's like when you look at a when you look at a, a, a radical prostatectomy and say, I have Gleason 6, but then you have foci of 7 and 8, you're like going, oh crap, it's not uniform across the whole prostate. I go, do you think the genetics are uniform across the whole prostate? Did you read that Nature article back in 2015, that guy who died, they looked at, you know, all his metastasis and he had like, what, like five different basically tumors, all right. prostate, but all had different, different identity when it comes to looking at their genomics. So it's kind of like going, just like prostate cancer is heterogeneous. It's like, when, uh, do you think the genomics are any different? Or the question I have is, does it change over time? I mean, if you said it doesn't change over time, then I said, I guess the ARV7 test is stupid because ARV7 seems to develop over time. And I am seeing more and more people who are ARV7 positive as I do more testing because I'm testing people longer in the course of the disease. And I think there's a push to basically get people to, to change. And if they change, maybe they are relevant to take a PARP inhibitor later in the disease than earlier in the disease because maybe they do move on to have that, D, that pressure to have more and more DNA change. And I think that's, that's the challenge. That's why I guess circulating tumor DNA looks most interesting because is that going to show a change over time that we can't appreciate on day one, but when they're really going on to multiple lines of therapy, are they suddenly demonstrating that circulating tumor DNA is, oh my gosh, I have an abnormality I didn't have before. So I think that's why I think for the average Joe, he hears me talking, I'm like going, 
oh crap I, I can't just say <laughs> rack of what I give this pill it's gonna I think it's gonna continue to evolve to say hey it, it's a moving target it doesn't stay static just like they don't respond to their primary ADT forever they ultimately change and you got a whole new clone of cells that isn't what it was originally I think that's I think that's what's going to happen. I don't know. There are those who argue maybe that that original change is determined on day one. You don't have to see what's going on down the road, but I think that's probably not accurate. Now, you, you said that you're, you're getting on your, you know, some of your early, you're moving some of the germline testing up earlier and earlier on detection, especially in intermediate guys. If you find somebody that is RAC positive or has a mutation, a CHECK2, an ATM, or any of those kind of things, how does that change what you do on a guy? Let's say he's an intermediate that you're either going to do radical or radiate. Um, does that change what you do with them in the future or how you treat them? Yeah, it does. It does. Because I'm going to be wildly aggressive. That's urology in general, right? You get a guy, you put him on Lupron. Okay, his PSA goes to one, you're happy. It goes to two, it's still low. Hey, moron, it doubled. But it's still low. I go, I don't care. It doubled. If you wait another year, oh, I didn't realize how fast it doubled. Now it's 18. How did that happen? I go, you know, it's like the guy who codes. We always joke in a resident. No one suddenly codes. Most people are telling you that for at least a shift or two before they're going to die. Same with this guy. He's telling you he's got a problem. So I think that that guy who's got an abnormality has suddenly vaulted himself forward to say, I'm going to come in for more visits. I'm going to get more careful follow-up. I'm going to pay more attention. I mean, they, they do worse, right? They're more likely to have metastasis if they're positive. The disease is more likely to progress more rapidly. You just have to be more on top of it. And, and guys, I don't see, I'm, I'm too busy. I go, then find somebody in your practice who isn't busy because you're basically telling this guy, he's got bad disease, we'll wait till you're in trouble to finally do something. And I think all our data says, waiting till they're in trouble is not beneficial. I mean, that's kind of the interesting thing about the M0 trials. That was the, the interesting thing about the pre-chemotherapy trials, right? All those trials were done drug versus placebo when you progressed, you could cross over to the active treatment, they didn't catch up. So everyone thought, oh my God, this, these studies are never gonna prove to be positive. We'll just add the drug later. They'll catch up. They don't catch up. Yeah. So this, this contamination by adding back active treatment later in the disease didn't turn out like they said, earlier is better. Even though we heard that for years, when you and I were residents, early hormonal therapy doesn't matter. You can wait till they're on death's doorsteps. Probably not. Yeah, probably, probably not. not. So I think. All the stuff says, it's just a matter of if you give everybody early hormonal therapy on a cancer that's never going to kill a guy, now you're killing him from side effects from his ADT. So you kind of, it goes back to, it's just more complicated than just the PSA went up. Uh -huh. How much? How fast? You know, a lot of other questions. Again, it's more complicated. I think it's why, you know, I like to say, I did the same thing the guy down the street does. I just do it better because I pay more attention to detail. Well, yeah, and this is your this is your stick too. Now, if you have a guy, let's say, because uh, Medicare may or may not be aware, just recently said anybody that in the future could be eligible for a PARP inhibitor, which is basically anybody with prostate cancer, um, can get germline testing. Um, if you have a guy who's you know family hit, family history or not, they're Gleason six on their biopsy, and you get a germline testing because you can, and it comes back positive even though they may be one core positive, PSA four, are you gonna put that guy on active surveillance? No. That was easy. I'm not. <laughs> what you're telling me is I have a Gleason six cancer, it's gonna be a bad actor. I think no different than he said, I've got a Gleason six and my Polaris score is through the roof. You're just gonna ignore that? 
Yeah. Or my oncotype, my scores are through the roof. I said, really? Well, you, you've got data there that says, aha. The question is, the interesting question is, are these early diagnostic tests for predicting outcome, the Polaris and the oncotype, and I guess now Decipher 2's got one, are they going to pick up a bracket two? Apparently, Gleason 6 cancer is going to be a good actor. I don't know. That, that data's not out there. Yeah. So we don't know. My guess would be that they might show that, but it might not. I don't know because we're not, we're not talking about the same stuff necessarily. We don't know that for sure. But I think the data says as having bracket two positive prostate cancer, I'm not likely to do well. I inherited one guy from one of my partners who I found out in retrospect was BRCA positive and has been in active surveillance. And all of a sudden now he started to act like he's progressing. And now he's suddenly panicked. And I, you know, when I picked him up, I go, you got a bad acting gene. I'm, I'm a little nervous about watching you. So I planted the seed and now all of a sudden he's nervous because his PSA suddenly starting to jump. And I go, yeah, I don't think that was a bright move to watch you. But, you know, I, I, time will tell. But I think most people now would say if you, if you carry a genetic abnormality, you probably need to be treated. Until we have convincing data otherwise, you ought, you, independent of your Gleason score, you got a bad predictor that says you're not going to be, you may not need to rush to have your radical prostatectomy tomorrow. But to wait five years is probably a mistake. Yeah, and probably watch them a little bit more closely than you would somebody else or something like that. Well, breast cancer, you know, they, they can get unaffected tests. So would that change? Or do you feel it's important to get what some guy that has a, comes in with you with a PSA of three, he's 50, early 50s, PSA two and a half, three, and horrible family history. I mean, do you think, would you want to get a germline test on that guy? Or just if they had known, like a known family history of a, BRAC2 or something like that. What's your feeling on that? I've had a few of those come in and what I've kind of gone back to them is saying, you know, your brother or your sister needs to be tested. Um, it'll have some prognostication for them. They probably were tested. They may, especially if it's a woman, there's a reasonable chance they were already tested. Do you know what the results were? Did you, did you have genetic, did your family have genetic counseling? So I've pushed that in a couple instances. Um, I'm, Harder pressed for the guy who's walking out the street saying, aha, you know, my sister has breast cancer. Should I just get a test on my own? You know, I, I've been impressed that we still are at our, our infancy. I mean, I've got guys who walk in and whose dad has it, whose brother has it, whose uncle has it. They've got it. I test them and they're negative. And I'm sure. like going, and that's going to be really, most of them. Really? Three family members and there's nothing there. So, and they've got prostate cancer themselves. So I'm like, I'm always so shocked at some of these really terrible family histories that I, there must, there's something out there. There's some other oncogene that we haven't discovered, but we don't know what it is right now. So I'm, I'm a more hard pressed to take a guy who's just walking in and says, my family history is positive. I'm more likely to say, I'm going to aggressively biopsy you going forward. Um, but I'm not necessarily going to tell you that I'm, that a germline testing at that moment is going to really, I'm probably going to be every bit as aggressive regardless of what their germline says, because their family history is bad. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you come in and say, my dad, my uncle, my brother has it, I said, your risk is fivefold, the average Joe. You're going to get aggressively biopsy, you know, two and a half is my cutoff for PSA of normalcy. I'm going to aggressively look at other testing. If I have any question, you know, I'm going to order a, an exosome or a 4K or an MRI or whatever else I need because you need to be aggressively checked. Um, I think your family history is enough, and we may or not ever discover in our lifetime what it is we're working on it but we haven't discovered what it is yet there's something out there. we all know we all agree it's out there we just don't know what it is yeah unless you're like in manhattan or long island where everybody's an ashkenazi jew so then <laughs> that's not that's, that's, that's much easier yeah that's much yeah. easier although i have a couple I actually have an ashkenazi jew who's bracket positive so it's interesting yeah there you and go. So daughter. 
Yeah, you know, because like though, yeah. personally, my father had prostate cancer, gluten seven, and my my aunt died of a metastatic ovarian cancer. And I'm like, you kind of want to know. So, I got tested yeah. just because of that. Um, let's go back a little bit. You know, we didn't talk much about it yet, but you know, the newest and greatest thing came out, which is there hasn't been that many doses given out yet, but the PARP inhibitors. You know, you got two now, and you're you're quick to to put people on chemo, so you may be more inclined to use both of these drugs more than most urologists. So um, let me ask you, just point blank, have you used either of them yet? And uh, what's your plans you know, in the future for the PARPs? I've cheated. So I've done, I've done, I've used a fair amount of PARPs, but I haven't used the commercial ones because I don't have anybody, I, I've already got people treated because I had trials. But I've got my first guy right now who I just saw his PSA yesterday, he's coming in next week, who's an Ashkenazi Jew, who's BRCA positive, got his first rise in PSA on um, anzalutamide. So I'm going to retest him. I said, if he's positive, now he's very in tune to this. So if he's positive, uh, he'll get his, he'll get switched over to a PARP. So he'll get his PARP, but he's already had chemo. He's already had uh, localized radiation. He's already had um, expandy. So he's, you know, he's like one year into it at progressing. So his prognosis is like, eh, yeah. awful. Yeah. I think the thing about PARPs is um, they're a little trickier to manage. Um, you're, they're not real myelosuppressive, but they are a little. Mm -hmm. So this guy in particular is chronically anemic. Great. Bled off and on from his prostate. So right. I've already TOR'd him once, which is great. So I don't need him to bleed again on a drug that's going to make him anemic. So I, I, he's actually finishing a low dose of radiation to his prostate to hopefully stop his bleeding, which I'm glad I did that now. His PSA started to creep on me, um, but he will get he will get a PARP. He'll be my first commercial PARP patient. I've got a, I've got a couple other guys, oddly enough, who are BRCA positive who are doing phenomenally well on like orals, like phenomenally well. Like one guy's like a year and a half into it. I'm like going, I don't know why he's doing so well. And I've got a number of people who are ATM and BRCA positive that I've already buried. You know, you look at the time frame of how long are people sensitive to PARPs, they're not on it like for five years. You know, they're right. on it for about a year. Isn't part of that the nature of when it's supposed to be used? I mean, this, the trials are out moving it up further in the, uh, in the food chain um, to do it, right. to use them earlier. That will, so. change it. that will change it. That's what our trials are right now. Our, we, the, trials, the trials that I've actually closed, or I had guys that are still on, were post-chemo, post-orals. But now I've got trials that are pre-chemo and just on an oral, like a, an Xtandi or on a um, Zytigo with a, with a PARP. So that's the trials that we have running now. So it's clearly getting moved up the food chain, as you say, and that'll change things a lot. But I think guys have to be aware of um, the interesting thing with AstraZeneca, excuse me, their, their product, you know, the, the DVTPE rates seven and a half, seven percent, something like that. And they didn't see that in the women with breasts, the women with ovarian, or the men and women with pancreas. So why it's suddenly the, the case in prostate is sort of like a, huh, huh. So that's sort of interesting. Is that a unique property of just, um, what is there's olaparib? I, I don't know. Uh, and there was, you know, there, was a, there was a PARP trial that didn't work at all. So I don't, I don't know if people are aware of, you know, PARP, everybody, a PARP's a PARP's a PARP. I go, probably not. So it's gonna be curious to see as the others come along with their data, um, you know, are all the PARPs going to have the same risk of, of, of DVTPE? Is that unique to AstraZeneca's product? Don't, don't know. But for now, it's, it's the first kid on the block that's appropriate for everybody, not only just BRCA, but everybody. 
so you know it's probably going to get the most use because it's going to cross over to get, take up the ATMs and the check two and the fancy A and all the others. So we'll we'll see. But I think it it requires again, you've got to have somebody who's paying attention to these people. You can't just say, here, take this drug. I'll see you in three months. Right. Plus, you know, the interesting thing is that you would expect because of the mechanism of action of everybody that does have um, an HRR mutation that they'd respond, but they don't. Well, I think there's something about the, the term brackiness, you know, and, and when they ask people what specific abnormality do they have within the BRCA gene that makes them positive and how do they all act? And I think the average Joe doesn't appreciate you could have a host of different abnormalities that make you BRCA positive. Right. Including like, you know, you're just missing a piece of gene. What do you mean? I said, it's called a deletion. There's just, you know, it's missing an action, but it's important. But, you know, how important is it? How badly am I going to act? I mean, I think we'll figure that out eventually, but it takes a while to accumulate enough people to say, okay, these three abnormalities within the BRCA gene that confer increased risk of getting malignancy also mean not only are you going to get it, you're going to do badly. And that's, again, what's going to be challenging. I mean, I think it's what's going to challenge urologists is as we get people who have these abnormalities, as we start looking at people in greater depth, when you do a biopsy in a guy, you can't just walk back in the room and say, hey, you need your prostate out. You know, you're going to need to know, maybe, maybe I'm going to have to have more aggressive treatment. And maybe, you know, automatically, if I go to radiation, I need to be treated for two years. Or maybe radiation is not in my best interest. Maybe surgery is going to be different because maybe this doesn't do as well with radiation. Or maybe this does better with radiation. I, I don't I don't know. No one knows yet. Right. So I think that it's going to make the whole treatment pathway more challenging than just walking in and say, here it is, cut it out. And I think if you're not, if, if for urologists, if they're not part of that ultimate team to say, I'm the captain of the team and I know exactly what you're supposed to do and I know who gets it out and I know who's gonna get radiated versus saying, I'm just a technician, I'll take it out if someone tells me to, it's not a spot that urologists wanna be in. What they wanna see and I, you know, people have asked me specifically is, I want a test that says, if I have this, I do that. And that was the best thing for the patient. I mean, maybe it will come to that, but I think you're right. We're, I don't think you and I are gonna see that in our lifetime. No, it's gonna take, it's gonna take a, lot of, a lot of data points and a lot of years to sort that out. Yeah. So it's just, it's, it's not happening anytime soon. Okay, so I'm gonna ask you one last thing. Overall, your take, advanced prostate cancer, what, what is your biggest message for everybody out there if you have to say, Guys, you got to do this. If you have one thing, what would you tell them? Well, since the bulk of the people in private practice are in a larger group, a group that's getting bigger, you got to get somebody who's as passionate about it as me because bladder cancer is coming and it's going to be the same thing. And bladder cancer is going to be equally as challenging and it's a few years behind, but it's equally interesting. Um, and you're going to have to have people that are really into it otherwise you're going to potentially marginalize yourself to become technicians listen paul i want to thank you so much for your insights and your comments and uh always enjoy speaking with you and uh we'll we'll pick this up again because when bladder cancer becomes more out i'm guessing that you'll probably be that guy in your group as well but uh prior to that i, I hope that we have more conversations and have discussions because uh i can't tell you how much i enjoy speaking with you Great. That was fun. Thanks. All right. I appreciate it. And thanks again. And um, I'll speak to you soon.